Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast, where we bring people together to explore the gap in common understanding of digital culture, media, and technology. This is a space where we discuss strategies for our rapidly evolving digital environment. We're all here learning together. Today, we welcome Beacon founder and author of Automating Humanity, Joe Toscano. Uh, something I've read about in my book is that none of these systems should be developed out without representation. And one thing I came uh, I came to, a line that I put in the book and that I've been pushing, uh, is that there should be no implementation without representation, the same way that we fought for no taxation without representation. Joe and Dr. Jamie Cohen will discuss how we can make technology that works for human interest instead of against it. This conversation was recorded live on Digital Void's YouTube channel on Wednesday, May 13th, 2020. To join us live, head on over to digitalvoid.media and register for our upcoming salons. We look forward to seeing you there. I am a former consultant for Google. I was an experienced designer. I started my career as a software engineer and in college spent some time doing data science. Uh, the reason I transferred, a lot of people were like, well, why didn't you study in data science? Why weren't you an engineer? Um, I didn't stay in data science because like, uh, I didn't enjoy the day-to-day fully being a researcher all the time. I didn't stay in engineering because as I built out systems, I started to realize pretty soon I'm going to build systems that build the systems. And so I won't have a job. Mm-hmm. And so I moved into design or information architecture at large. And the blending of my skills, having that background has really helped me uh, be a better designer and think through the systems of what I'm designing from a technical perspective versus just being more of an artist. Um, that being said, while I was at Google, I was, I was helping with a lot of uh, both internal product beta release and, and development, but also um, a lot of marketing and taking things to product or uh, to, so, sorry, said that backwards, a lot of product marketing and taking things to market. Um, so I saw a lot of their practices and, and also to keep them on top, we had to realize, you know, what's going on on Amazon, what's going on on Facebook, learned a lot about the industry and just holistically didn't believe in the way that the system was treating society. Uh, and so I left in 2017 and uh, <clears throat> I've been touring the world really for the last three years, giving talks about technology ethics, uh, how we how we change the system, uh, both from a consumer perspective and from a business perspective. And that's where uh, both my book, Automating Humanity, which is, uh, I mean, I'll a little glimpse. Um, it's, a, it's a book that's really like a it's a manual for the general public to pick up and understand what's going on and get involved because there's so many books out there um, that are that are technically brilliant but inaccessible to the general public. And so I, I knew being from Nebraska, I was like, we need something that the middle of the country can pick up. And, and they don't have to be experts, but they can at least engage politically and not just scream uh, for something that they don't really know how to talk about. Um, so that was part of it. And then uh, second part is out of the book, I created Beacon. And Beacon stands for the Better Ethics and Consumer Outcomes Network. And uh, as you can hear in the title, I mean, it's taking ethics and making them consumer outcomes. And the reason we did this um, is because we tried pushing legislation. We tried getting into that realm, and it's very hard. Uh, we are in that realm. I'll, I'll tell you that. Like I, I also help with the World Economic Forum and setting uh, national and global level frameworks. I've been in conversations with New York State Senate on different policies for data privacy, including their Data Privacy Act 2020, as well as um, <clears throat> some stuff around COVID that's that's coming out in the near future. Um, but what we saw when we were pushing into policy is like, that's a three to five, maybe 10 year time cycle to get policy in place. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the best way to make changes that we believe is that you find out how to do it on business terms. And so Beacon, we take those ethical dilemmas, translate them into consumer outcomes and put a dollar value to better business practices, which we then sell back into companies um, either through consulting or through product development, which we are just going to be releasing our first white label privacy solution here in a couple of weeks. So um, probably a lot more that we could cover, but that was uh, in the weeds enough. So let's, uh, I guess. Yeah, it's a really important uh, process. And I do agree with you that like, working with policy legal and everything is very difficult i mean it's yeah. due to the nature of the the political yeah. system we have it, it's difficult to talk about this and especially difficult to talk about something that people really have a problem understanding at the very the very base level and mm-hmm. it's i think we because of the freeness free of a lot of these apps and a lot of the technologies people forget that like nothing's free and that if you're not paying for it you're obviously the product but that obviousness is obvious to me but it's not obvious to users because they get some sort of benefit. And I know a lot of your work revolves around making that recognizable. So can you talk about how you bring those ideas to the public? How do you uh, give a metaphor or do you use anecdotal evidence? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that's a really big uh, question, but great question. Um, and it is one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, um, especially when it comes to like monopoly behavior. Um, I, I've sat in conversations with the attorneys, attorneys generals. It's such a weird way. Why would you just say attorney general? <laughs> attorneys generals across the United States, uh, sometimes up to 15 or 20 of them in a room from different states, uh, talking about the antitrust investigation with Google and Amazon and Facebook. Um, <clears throat> the thing I try to bring to them is, you know, if you don't know antitrust law, there's three main pillars to it, which is uh, the price gouging aspect or the price fixing, whatever you want to call it. Um, there is the restriction of trade or free trade. And then there's the destruction of competition. There's obviously different variables here and there, but those are the main three pillars. And um, most legislators I talk to, most attorney generals I talk to can clearly see something's happening in the realm of destruction of competition. Mm. Um, good chunk of them are getting to the point where they're starting to see the restriction of free trade. But that's even really difficult because when you're talking about trade, it's no longer like uh, like the railroads, which physically you can see what's going through the world. Right. Or, um, you yeah, know, the material. Yeah. Banking your oil. Mm-hmm. It is data. And so um, to wrap their heads around the free exchange of data is hard. But a simple example I tell people is like, for example, sharing on Facebook. When I click the share button on Facebook, um, there are more options today, like literally today than there were last year. Um, but still most of the options are share within Facebook or share within Facebook products like mm-hmm. app or Instagram, messenger, things like that. Um, there's not share to Twitter. There's not like share to Pinterest, stuff like that. And why is that? Well, that is what we call in the digital world, a seamless digital ecosystem. It is built for, uh, consumer experience purposes. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no lying about that. That is the truth. If, if, uh, I click that share button and I got a thousand different places to share it to, I'd be overwhelmed. It wouldn't really probably be enjoyable. Um, but also it's restricting the free trade of data across platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they intentionally do that to keep the data within their walled garden. So I've, you know, that's a simple example that I bring up and I talk to them about, but the hardest thing for them to wrap their minds around is the price gouging or the price fixing. Because like you had mentioned, things are generally free nowadays. And a lot of the more recent antitrust you know, uh, competition and those kind of questions have relied on the fact that if it's getting cheaper fiscally, that's best for the consumer. 
And so now that we've hit zero, isn't that just optimal? Um, and that's kind of where I have to really stretch their minds a bit and uh, explain to them that, yes, while the fiscal price is zero, these companies now operate in a different uh, a different marketplace, right, which we now know as the attention marketplace. Mm-hmm. And in this marketplace, they take attention, they turn it into a what I believe is a legitimate asset of data, mm-hmm. and then they use that data to create new products, to sell or trade or the label they want to give it, and um, then make money. Uh, and so they're taking an illegitimate asset, they're turning it into a legitimate asset, and turning that into cash. And that operation acts a bit like a money laundering scheme, right? And that's what I bring them is like, it's not actually money laundering. I'm not trying to frame that at all. But what they have to realize is that there is a black market going on. They've created this new marketplace that is controlled only by those who are in power and only understood by those inside. Uh, and it's complexified saying, don't look at us. We're doing okay. We're doing fine. There's no problems here. Uh, do you know the last time that that happened? Mm-hmm. The financial crisis. Oh, of course. Yeah. Like the capacity of the uh, housing market that we couldn't even yeah. figure out. Yeah, the complexity of the loan programs, all those things don't look. It's it's double, triple A rated, whatever it is. And uh, it's all safe. Don't worry. We're good. It's too complex for you to understand. We've heard these arguments before. And then we saw one of the largest crashes uh, up until the last couple months. Um, and so what I saw back you know, three years ago, I saw this and I was like, this is not good. Um, whether it collapses or not, I, you know, fingers crossed it doesn't. Whether it collapses or not, it's not good behavior. And we need to figure out how to fix it. And so I bring that to them. And then uh, if you bring it back a little bit, though, I abstract it even more beyond that. Because I don't, I'm not trying to point a crime of money laundering. But let's consider data a legitimate asset and has a value to it. Then we have to consider this. Um, the whole point of gaining attention is to gain more data. So yeah. we are paying in data, right? Mm-hmm. That means while they've lowered the fiscal cost to zero, they are actively and intentionally raising the attentional price or the data as high as possible. So they're now price gouging in this new marketplace they've created. And that's when the legislators go. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah, <laughs> really thought of it that way. Yeah, um, but that's how they make their money. Yeah, um, and that was a, it's a, it's a pretty simple thing when you like really abstract it out, but it's very complex to actually understand if you don't have any conceptualization of what's going on on the platform or in the system. It's also the conceptualization of value itself because they have to create an idea of what value is in data. So it has, if it's worth something, and in this case, attention, it's converted into currency from through the systems. But if if a consumer sees it as a zero cost input, there is a value in their experience or their value in their time, whatever the value is has a a numerical number. Mm -hmm. And then it's filtered or laundered through the the social media into banks, data banks, so to speak, in uh, the cloud. Then we often forget that like, like the roots of these these terminologies of data means to give, but we're really in a capta situation. It's more of that to t- they're taking, you know, because we maybe at the beginning data was the format formula where it was, we were just creating, creating, creating. But as time went on, the capta system became this large vacuuming and really precision based analysis of what value can be placed. How did they 
how do they know they're doing it right? How do this, the, the, the corporations know they're actually creating the right value? Or are they just trying to take as much as they can? I would say they don't know at this point um, because there isn't a set value to data, right? There's no like uh, gasoline is X amount of dollars per gallon in the United States. There's nothing like that for data. Um, I've tried to frame a way that we could value it. And it's really difficult because first of all, different value is attributed to different people. Uh, mm -hmm. so there are different data points as well. But I mean, a very baseline way we could conceptualize it is uh, we could figure out how much data is created in general. Uh, then how much data does the average person create per hour? Mm -hmm. right? And then we could start to frame it from there as like, based on how much data someone's creating, we could relatively price it at an hourly rate, similar to how we do labor. Uh, that's very general. There's a lot right. of detail in there I'd have to walk through to like really get to the detail. You know, we'd have to hygiene it. We'd have to look through and make sure a bunch of different things are happening, that it's not just bots creating data to earn capital mm -hmm. stuff like that. There's a lot of variables in there. Um, so I won't go into super depth on that. But ultimately, it comes down to the fact that <clears throat> data, like money, like any other real asset, is simply... <clears throat> A physically, like a, I guess data is barely even physical as, as we conceptualize it, but it is an actualization of our labor. Right. Mm -hmm. that I don't know the best way to say that, but um, like uh, something I, I wrote about my book and something I talked about in my, in my TEDx is, uh, so for example, <clears throat> Bill Gates thinks we should tax automation, specifically in the form of robots. And that's kind of easy to do because you can see a robot doing work. So you can say this robot worked X amount of hours, produced X amount of capital. And so we can charge it tax just like we would a human. Right. Um, the thing is the large majority of automation happens through software. And where is the labor in software? Right. For one, software is not a physical entity as it is with a robot. Mm -hmm. It's infinitely scalable. It can work 24 seven, no complaints, no nothing. Um, but where is the labor? Well, the labor is in the data we create, right? When we create data, we are teaching that system how to operate effectively. Yeah. And so that is the labor. And so my claim that I, I brought to the, you know, some of these legislators is that we should be taxing uh, based on the collection and processing of data, the amounts, similar to how we, uh, <clears throat> we price our utilities of water going through our house, right? Mm -hmm. If we analyze how much water is processing through our homes, and pay a relative cost to our, our usage, uh, I believe that companies should have to do the same thing. Uh, and this tax, for one, it would then create uh, cloud law. So all these companies that are evading taxes worldwide because they're just, they can be anywhere. They're not under any specific jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. They no longer can do that. This is cloud law. So it's based on how much data you're processing and collecting on your cloud in general. Right. doesn't matter if that's data from the US, from Europe, wherever. Like, for example, we as the U.S. might say, uh, make this law for U.S. citizens. So Google could go process data in Europe, but it's a United States citizen's data. And so they have to pay the tax of the United States so it comes back to us. That's right. one thing. Um, it would give companies a reason to actually find a legitimate revenue model beyond just existing on investment capital. Like, could you imagine, for example... Amazon spent, what, uh, almost 20 years in the red, 15, 20 years. I don't know the exact dates, but something about that, 15, 20 years in the red before they became revenue positive. And it was mostly floating on investor capital. Mm -hmm. right? 
could you imagine investors dumping billions of dollars into a company that on top of running in the red also has to pay a tax on the, all that data they were collecting? They would have never broken even on stuff like that, right? Um, and so a lot of these companies, it would change their business model. And finally, we could take that tax or money. It could come back directly to the consumer. I would really love that, but that's an even bigger step uh, that we'd have to discuss. Um, but let's say it's just a general tax. Yeah. That tax could then go back to uh, reskilling labor, you know, reskilling people. Mm -hmm. um, similar to back in the day, we used taxes to help build railroads or roads, things like that. We can now retrain workers, uh, both in technology or in sustainability efforts or things that we need as, um, lack of better words, like nationalized efforts and, and labor efforts. You know, right. um, it could provide really great jobs for people. Uh, there's a lot of benefits to it, and I, I do explain it a lot in the book. Yeah. Um, in more detail but yeah it's a lot of a lot of things to walk through it's it's a lot to think through because even just your your explanation is it's, <laughs> it's heavy duty it's also the con concept of reverse engineering the data like kind of knowing like your your analogy i think is perfect when we see machines operating we interpret that as labor but you're right when it's doing the same process the software can be used ten thousand times and there's no real way of of understanding what the code does at multiple spaces. And, labor, yeah. yeah, and the opacity of all this is is intentional, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I think it's designed because, you, I think, let's go back to your old example of like, or your former example of the housing crisis. Financial illiteracy is by design so that we can't think of it. One of my big parts of teaching students is teaching them about interest, like just to explain like how much a student loan costs. And those types of things are like, to me, a credit issuer should tell you that up front, but obviously they're not going to because then you just wouldn't do it. Uh, and when we use social media or anything, like I know this is a big part of your work, but like it's so amazing to me when I, I ask my rhetorical question every class. So you've all read the terms of service, of course, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, no, I mean, none of them have. And I know that a lot of your work too is simplifying that down so it's a lot more accessible. So yeah, does the terms of service actually tell us anything or is it? <laughs> um, at, at this point in history, we're going to say no as a general statement. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that is a big part of my work now with with the World Economic Forum. I'm on their data protection initiative. Um, uh, I'm part of their steering committee, and um, so yeah, that's that's a big thing I work on all the time, and that's also what our product is for. Um, so what we've been working on, um, we're calling instead of legally binding contracts, right? That's what a lot of people are looking for. Um, I think we've aced legally binding contracts at this point in history. I think we've perfected them to the point where they are abusive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, what we're working on is loyalty binding contracts. So these are contracts that will protect you as a business, but also be reasonable enough that they are accessible to the public and explanatory in a sense that you're still going to have all your protections, but people are actually going to understand what they're engaging in and have access to control them. Um, and so that's a big thing for us. Yeah, because no, right now it's it's not accessible. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm doing a big study on our policies, not just policies, because th that's another thing is we get lost in the privacy policy being the way to understand the company. In reality, it's not just the privacy policy. If you really want to know what's going on, you have to read the privacy policy. You have to read the terms of service. You have to read the cookie agreement. And most of them, what people don't really think about is even in them, there's embedded other codes such as like, if you don't understand this, reference the US-EU Privacy Shield. Okay, that's another 100 pages. Um, it's a bunch of legal legislation at federal government level. Like, there's so many things to this. Um, and so 
yeah, we're actually focused on instead of uh, recreating just policies, we're actually focusing on uh, entire privacy centers so that like a small company could get up and running within an hour with their privacy center set up. And so um, this is a place where consumers can come and they can access all of those policies in one place if they do want to read them. Mm-hmm. But then there's other parts of the center that makes simpler explanations and highlights the key facts of things that you might get from each policy. Um, it will state what is prohibited to do on this. It will have FAQs. It will break the policies down in a much simpler way and also give you direct access points to, you know, download your data, to uh, request changes and do, you know, have access to all your legal rights under GDPR, CCPA, mm-hmm. uh, which generally isn't happening right now, mostly because of, of the scale of implementation, right? We, we made a, in the GDPR and the CCPA and, and some of these other laws coming out, this is something I brought up in New York is I fully believe in what they're pushing, uh, the transparency, the uh, granularity of control, the descriptiveness, all these access rights. I believe in them. But the second that they launched the GDPR, the whole internet broke. Let's right. just be honest. The whole yeah. internet broke. And um, it's going to take us years to build to that standard. And the reason why we're not seeing a lot of fines, although we're seeing fines, don't get me wrong. But like I said, the whole internet broke. So we should be seeing literally millions of fines right now. Yeah. Uh, the reason we're not is because it's impossible for a small handful of legislators to keep up with all of those. And so actually it becomes like learned helplessness for the for the uh, governments because they're like, there's so much to do, I don't even know where to start. Wow. So, you know, we're just putting ourselves in this strange position. Um, I will tell you, I know I have friends working also in the space. We are working to develop what amounts to a data protection agency for the United States and for other countries. Um, if you read the GDPR, I believe it's chapter six, like section 51 or 52 area, wow. something like that. It's uh, They have stated the need for what they call ISAs, independent supervisory authorities, yep. because the, they knew the government's not going to be able to keep up. Mm-hmm. They also said that these authorities should be funded at least partially by the government. And this is because we want them to avoid regulatory capture, right? The reason with the financial crisis was uh, you had Moody's, you had some of these uh, stock evaluators, these uh, bond and loan evaluators, whatever, who were paid and existed holistically on the revenue sources of their auditing. So this puts the big companies in a powerful position for what they call regulatory capture, which is simply that uh, because I'm paying you, you better make me happy. And that's what happened. Um, if you have an independent supervisory authority that is at least partially funded by the government, it gives that authority, that department or company organization, whatever you want to call it, the opportunity to have a little bit more backbone because they can fall back on subsidized money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's there's just a lot of it, it's a it's, it's, it's extremely a, complex and it sounds like it, it has to work on multiple multiple tiers of protection in order for something to even be moved forward, especially in this current environment. I, I want to ask you a question about the most who are who to you is the most vulnerable. To, to any of these problems, like is it, is it children, adults, mm. the disability, people with disabilities? Like who who has, or all of us, or is it just a broad? We're all vulnerable to being taken advantage of by these types of systems. I'm gonna I'm gonna cop out and say that all of us. Okay, I'm say that right now. To be honest with you, I mean, like every every sector, every human being. Think about it. Back in the days of the printing press, or even before the printing press, right? 
the reason why the church had so much power is because you had to go to the church in order to have things translated for you, essentially, right? They mm-hmm. had to read it to you. They were the only ones who could read the scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are at a point where like uh, some of the technocrats in Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere, the big bubbles, um, are some of the only data literate citizens in the world, right? It's a very, very small sliver of the population that has this insider knowledge. And we as uh, outside of that bubble, anyone outside of that bubble who is not data literate, has to rely on the morality of those people. But unfortunately, we're in the middle of a gold rush that's been going on for 15 years. Yeah. So you have to be reliant that robber barons are going to be moral and compassionate, noble people. Uh, what we've found through the last 10 to 15 years is that's just not the case. And now we're putting regulation in place to protect people. And right. we're not putting regulation in place because we want a ton of regulation. We're doing it because there literally needs to be a baseline. Otherwise, we're going to have a bunch of abuses because we're not going to just, this isn't a five or 10 year plan to make people data literate. Like you're talking decades, if not centuries, think about long it took from Gutenberg press in 1450s to now we have still almost 10% of global population that's illiterate. Yeah. You know, we can do it much faster now because of the internet and online education and access to those things. Maybe we can achieve it in a hundred years. That would be crazy, but you're talking a long time. And so we need a lot of people. A lot of people. And so yeah. we need some foundational guardrails to protect people. That's yeah. my personal belief. Um, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but that's where I sit, you know. No, I, I think that's a very cogent and important way to think about it. I, I I always use historical references in that way because we we forget that the Gilded Ages of all time came from it, the taking advantage of those who didn't have access. Right. And today we're living through the very, people forget we're living through the extremely early days of social media. Like this, YouTube turned 15 like a month ago. You know, it's it's not even out of its teens at this point. And it's at this point, I would say there's no real outside to YouTube. Everybody knows that it exists, but nobody knows what or how it operates. They just simply experience it. Exactly. And that, that to me is like something that if we, like if you could just in 1450s or let's say, let's say 1470, not everybody had access to a book at that point. And at this point, over a third of the world's population has access to the, the internet. So it's like this, the access is huge, but the literacy is probably the same. Like, it's just, we don't know how to operate the machines. We just simply go on them. Yeah. So the question I would ask you next is a, is a little about the current situation. We're now digital. Like we're now in a digital world. For those of us who have the privilege to work from home and for those of us who have the privilege to have become digital, yeah. What does this mean for companies? Are they? This is like the ultimate data grab at, at any moment. Now they're now they're seeing us in our captive state. They didn't really see us in the captive state before. They saw us in their mobile state. So what does that mean now? Uh, forced paradigm shift. Um, of course, like I don't know what else to tell you. But, um, right. That's part of why I left. To be honest, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book about I predict I was predicting like the economy is going to crash. And what's going to happen when the economy crashes is that we have all this automation already built. Uh, And so when the economy crashes, we're going to see the markets continue to grow, which, oh, by the way, that's what's happening Mm -hmm. because we don't need the humans to do the labor anymore. Right. And those humans aren't going to get their jobs back. So what happens when you have large change like McDonald's, for example, has been switching over to kiosks within their store? Well, now just happens to be a great time to roll those out nationwide. 
And by the way, oh, we don't need as many workers anymore either. You know, um, you saw even like a year and a half ago, I believe Verizon cut like 30% of their workforce and said, we're focusing more on innovation and less on managing people. What, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, um, they were preparing. And now that we have this forced paradigm shift, um, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not going to be a conspiracy theorist and try to say it was intentional at all because mm -hmm. this is a global health pandemic. But to tell me that these corporations are not at least a little fiscally excited by the fact that they don't have to be the bad guys to lay off. <laughs> and it's just like a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, you might be a little too nice in your opinion of a corporation. Um, They're you know, not our friends. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but that was a big reason why I left because to be honest with you, I saw a huge market opportunity back then to go start and help companies prepare for this transition. Um, and, and I saw it as an opportunity for me, one, to go back. Um, like I'm in Nebraska right now. This is my parents' basement. It's my childhood bedroom. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to live in Nebraska the rest of my life, but, um, these are people I grew up with here, mm -hmm. people that I've, I've, I've learned from. I, I, they're my people. It's my heart. My soul is here in Nebraska. That's how I was raised. And, um, if I can help them, if I can help them, I can create a model that can be taken anywhere in the United States and um and help gentrify and and leapfrog these rural communities i saw this both as something that i could morally believe in as i work because like i said i left because i just i didn't believe in morally what i was doing out there um, so i saw it as something i morally believed in and i saw it as a great great fiscal opportunity as a businessman yeah um you know it's not taking advantage of people it's it's helping reskill workers and uptrain people and i think there's uh, and empowering economies that have been dying for a long time. Like I, I truly believe that the Trump election um, was not purely racist, misogynistic, et cetera, et cetera. Now I, I believe there's a cohort of, of his voters who are that way, but uh, having gone home after the election, talking to people, one, I went to my mom uh, and I just, I was like, can you believe this? You know, I was just having a conversation with her. And the first thing she said to me, which I hope everyone takes this and like kind of thinks about it a little bit, First thing she said to me is, you know, we feel like everyone who voted for him felt for the last eight years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that's part of democracy. And also part of democracy is helping build communities. We should not be reliant on a president or government officials to be the community builders. We as individuals need to go back into our communities and we need to not isolate ourselves in big cities and big tech bubbles. We need to extend our hands out and it's time that we help people move forward because we have communities full of people who have been getting pushed out due to automation, who are afraid of the future of their jobs, who don't know how to, you know, what to tell their kids to go to school for or how they're even going to manage their lives. They're losing their stability. And it's time for us to go back and help them. This is not going to maybe make you a billionaire, but I hope that it's satisfactory to your soul. And uh, it's plenty, there's plenty of work out there right now. And I think it's a prime opportunity. I think your, your, your point is very cogent. I think your, your approach and your, your tact is right there. I, when I teach civic engagement or I teach classes, I remember I teach in New York. So it's very different. The Long Island is a very different space than most of the country or if not everywhere. 
And I try to consistently remind people, since I teach technology and I teach new media, or, or I'm a new media scholar, like I'm always thinking about what does it look like outside of any of our specific bubbles? Yeah. What I've always remembered, and what something, somebody said this to me, and I don't remember the, the attribution at this point, but somebody said that a lot of the election was based on, and this is, this is real, is based on anxiety, regardless of what the rhetoric is that's in that. Mm. And the anxiety that was, that put, like I thought of the most was one, this very much this bifurcated United States anxiety, but also this anxiety of sometimes when we're talking about immigration or what sometimes we're talking about immigration things, we're talking about automation. Like it's just a different way of thinking. And so we're using, boogeyman or scapegoating, but really there's an anxiety about work and labor yeah. and the idea of technology being it. Stability. And, That's yeah. yeah. And to me, that was something that hit at the heart of the rural centers or even just further suburban sectors. Once yeah. you go a hundred miles away from the ocean or any city, yeah. you get to these places where people are concerned and that anxiety manifests in any way in which, now this is where I feel like the technologies themselves have a say in it. It invests themselves in a way that someone could come in with solutions or ways of interpreting those anxieties differently. Now that's a completely different conversation that maybe the platforms themselves are complicit in in those natures of delivering that type of information. But regardless, what that is, is that the technologies over the course of the last 10 years, and we've brought this up on previous episodes, and one of the reasons why we had you on is because of your approach in this, this very human-centric way, mm -hmm. is to remember that the 2010s was about this era of this gig economy, like this idea of people being part of the data field, being a driver for a company with no boss, uh, being part of a uh, an influencer space in which you're presenting yourself. But who are you? Uh, who's your employer? Like who who actually provides yeah. your income? And like Robert Kinsel always says at YouTube, he's like, well, I look after the, the YouTubers or the creators. And it's like, but you can't go and knock on his door and be like, Robert, I need help. So the 2010s kind of eroded what we thought of as like what labor is. And then when there's a snap or a moment where you can kind of get clarity, yeah, that's a big shift. People don't figure out those things until after. It's always a little bit of a reaction, unfortunately, because people aren't thinking it. I know and that's your job now is to kind of remind people <laughs> that's what these are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, I think, I think also in your, your spot on. And I think in that, uh, we often get lost as people who are in the field. Um, it's all too common for us to say, oh, well, they're they're just dumb. They don't get it. They didn't see it coming. It's natural selection. Um, I would reframe it. I would say, actually, people are living their lives and they don't have 10, 20, 30 hours a week to be reading the books, keeping up with all the Twitter feeds, all the new frameworks of code coming out, all this stuff, um, because they have kids that they have to take care of. They have bills they have to pay. They have health insurance and not everyone has the time or the luxury or the privilege to have had that education. Um, my parents are, I mean, my parents are smart people, but they didn't go to college. They're blue collar workers. They built our family and our lives off of postal salaries. And they built a second business out of that worked two jobs for 20 years of my life. I mean, they're yeah. not, they're not dumb people. They're really hard workers. And that's what a lot of rural America is but they just didn't have a need. There was no necessity to pick these things up. And what's been happening is a groundswell underneath of them that's just cutting the rugs out from under them. And then you have these people who, uh, and I'm not talking about my parents specific because they're, they're more liberal than a lot of the people in the area, but you have a lot of people in rural communities who lack broadband access, mm -hmm. have very fundamental things lacking from their lives, maybe are even getting their news still from the radio. And so, 
when they hear all these reports of immigrants taking their jobs and they live in a community that's 90 to 100 percent white, they don't have any exposure to people outside of their communities. It's very easy to convince them that that is the truth. When, as a matter of fact, it is robotics and automation that has been taking jobs for the last decade. Yeah, it's not going away. And and it's definitely not because the systems itself can't help. I always use this term when I talk to my students at scale. I always say it's always about scale. Like whatever, whatever those things are, it's not like the machine. It's not like one day Zuckerberg walks in and goes, we we did it. We reached, we reached it. You know, (laughs) it's always the idea that it's going to scale outward. So I I have two more questions. Um, First, it kind of builds on the idea of the, the, the automated economy and what that is, is, Nick, Nick Cernicek wrote this book about platform capitalism, how mm-hmm. the, the platforms themselves are in this, this never-ending quest to convert everything into some sort of uh, immaterial, turn the immaterial into some sort of product. And mm-hmm. if they're able to quantize that, then they're able to manipulate us in the ways that we haven't yet thought of. And I know that your book talks a lot about reconsidering how we even do advertising. So it comes from the advertising and from the, the platform side. So both sides seem to be pushing the user further away from knowledge, but also into more participatory experiences simultaneously. And so I, I was just wondering if you think about like the way of what scale will look like in terms of like, this is post pandemic, post years from now, like what it looks like in terms of like our agency inside of these spaces when we're being con- consistently converted into capital. Hmm. That's a deep question. Um, and to be honest with you, I haven't spent a ton of time like thinking all the details through on that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think we're headed into a world where there's a, a split. Uh, when I was, uh, for example, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple points of contention here. Uh, when I was out at the World Economic Forum, uh, one of the last presenters at our at our uh, meetup workshop last October. He's a international diplomat. He walks up and says, I've been doing diplomacy for 25 years. And he said, I'm going to put a bet for you all to watch for the next five to 10 years. He says, in 10 years, we're going to have four internets across the world. We will have the United States. We will have Europe. We will have China. And then we will have a dark web. And that will be how people exist. So I think part of that's going to be a big split. And then I have also considered, I believe that you're going to have a split even within those of those who choose to live in entertainment for the rest of their lives. You know, maybe they love virtual reality. Maybe they don't care about all this. Maybe they literally, they would rather live in virtual utopia than deal with the realities of the real world. Sometimes you can't blame them. And then I think we're having a split of a bunch of other people who want to use technology simply as a utility to improve their lives and to extend themselves as I believe technology should be used. I will be in that camp for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there will be a, um, uh, I think to be honest with you, I think that split probably though is a large majority going the entertainment route because it's easier and uh, it requires less critical thinking. And from an endorphin perspective could be a lot more enjoyable. and then you maybe have 20 to 30% go the other way and, and really use it as utility. And, um, and that's kind of how I see it coming out. That's a very broad. No, I think that's a really good, I, I have thought that many times. I think science fiction writers have thought it. Everyone from Neil Stevenson to Tim Mon. 
like these new books that have been coming out consider not a there's no such thing in the future of a collapse of an internet but definitely a fracturing of of access um recently in the atlantic uh, maya mcginnis wrote an article about capitalism's addiction problem um and it was talking about what is the marketplace of it in other words what happens when scale does cause a problem where your addiction or your the term you use is seamless interaction or insular use like i always think of instagram when you say that. there's no way to get instagram out of instagram and so you have to like do work to make that happen yeah doesn't that cause a problem for companies don't they don't they want to work in a more open space because aren't they going to be stuck like that i'm this is a truly a, coming from a point of curiosity can you explain that a little more what do you mean by so stuck? she she explains that um the distraction addiction, the fact that we're stuck, the uh, time spent, all the other calculations keep us inside the platform. How does that work with the free market? Like don't uh, companies want to compete? You're talking, you've brought up that monopolies are definitely a big problem, but don't they want to? Isn't the free market the idea of competition or is that just not a thing to be thinking about? Uh, let me challenge your thinking on it. I think ideally it is. And for people like you and me, yes. Um, but I personally believe the push for automation and scale is simply a desire for control wow. and not like not necessarily authoritarian control. I'm going to go back to the word I said when I was talking about rural communities, but control in the sense of stability. Right. right? I believe inherently in human being, although a lot of us love to travel and do these things, we actually really love stability. And I think that that drives a large majority, if not the majority of our behaviors across our lifetime. And I think automation is simply the idea of stability. It's a dream. It's a pipe dream. If I could have everyone on the world on my platform and everything was automated and it's uh, Amazon was literally delivering me predictive packages to my door and all this stuff, the business would just pump forever and ever and ever. And it would be nonstop. We'd have quarterly increases all the time. Right. Think about why we want to automate systems. It's not because people can't do it. It's because people can't do it as good or as perfect as perfect that's the key word right uh perfect comes back to control comes back to ultimately a manical desire for stability i think that in the quotation you brought up the addiction of you know capitalism or not um i do believe just like everything else every psychological disease in life there's a spectrum and those who lead the largest organizations often have on the spectrum of uh sociopathic greed. <laughs> Um, maybe we can consider that sociopathic desire for ultimate stability. Um, let's, I'm, I'm being very generous there. Yeah. Well, that answered my question perfectly. I mean, that's yeah. from your expertise. I mean, you're, you're obviously seeing this from a much broader view than where I'm coming from. And I, I think there's just a lot of competing people have all the like rhetorical comebacks for a lot of this, which is like, mm -hmm. well, can it, can't it just stop? Won't it just break? Won't it do this? I think it will. I think it will break only because, yeah. I have to be honest, like it's not breaking in China and I don't think it's going to break in China, but they have a different culture, right? Yeah. Um, I've said this over and over again as I go give talks, like my hope, of, like why I have a shining light of hope in this is because we are the United States. And while the United States, I believe, is not in the greatest uh, political position that we've been in, you know, we're kind of in a rough spot right now. Um, the United States is a nation that was born out of a bunch of people who got on a boat at one point and said, screw you guys, we're going to go, we're going to either die out in the ocean or we're going to make it to land and we're going to redo this whole thing. You know, we are a bunch of, you know, people who want to disturb the peace and, and make our own ways. 
And so I believe fundamentally that we will find a way out of this and it may take time. And, and as we're seeing right now, we're seeing a lot of sacrifices made through lives, through economic disaster, through all these things. Uh, I believe what we're watching though right now, beyond everything else that's put out there in the news in the more day-to-day sense, I believe for the past 12 years, we've been in a revolution Mm -hmm. and people are just unaware because it's not history yet. Right. Right. Oh, exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll come out of it better, but right now it's real rough. Yeah. People don't think about people read hit revolution in retrospect. They don't realize what it means to live. We're in it. And I love, I, I like being in history. Like I, I just, I'm interested in that. So, um, Thank you. Uh, Josh has a quick question, then we're gonna jump to our audience members. Cool. Joe, thank you so much for everything so far. And one thing that came to mind is that through data empowerment and allowing people to own their data and potentially sell their data, how do you make sure in a system like that, that it's equitably distributed, that people who suddenly possess their data are not going to feel forced to sell their data just because there are weaker social safety nets, that it doesn't just become uh, almost like a cap system and that uh, the the less privileged are going to be able to, uh, uh, the less privileged will have to sell their data while the more privileged uh, will have a sense of privacy and security. Yeah, uh, good question. I think that uh, let me start off by saying I don't think we'll ever uh, be able to entirely avoid that categorical difference between uh, levels of uh, financial independence. Um, not at least not in the United States and capitalist systems, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I think there are ways to put controls on it and to try to make things more equitable. Um, but yeah, I mean, even think of day to day like what's happening right now with the coronavirus and the skew in deaths towards people of color. Um, That's often we're seeing a lot because they are in the lower paying jobs and they're forced to go work in the factories or at the grocery store or all these different things um, because of they, they have the inequities in society Um, go even one step further beyond that. Even before the coronavirus, like think of the waiter system here in the United States, the wait, like in other countries, waiters get paid a wage, mm-hmm. um, but also there's the balance of service, right? In the United States, we run it the way we do because we want that service. We, that's that's an American economy thing. It's a abusive in many ways, uh, almost you know slave in some ways, uh, based on how little they get paid unless they work. Um, and I'm not I'm not saying I'm in support of that. I just think it's going to be a very big hurdle to get over it. Um, and I think it really comes down to having appropriate representation on, uh, you know, the people writing these bills and helping implement law. Uh, we are seeing changes. Uh, now, is it the, quite the level we need yet? Um, I, I would say no. But, um, for example, like some of the policy that we've been doing in New York, uh, we've been very intentional in the fact that we bring in representation from all different parts of society uh, to act and help write some of this stuff uh that's and that just takes intentional action it's very hard um yeah. but 
again, that's, that's a, it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of effort. And I think for the people who care about that, the best thing you can do is continue to be politically active. Yeah. Uh, because if you lull the sleep or if you believe that it's just going to get taken care of, that's when Trump happens. You know what I'm saying? Like we have to, we have to maintain activity and uh, we have to educate people and we have to keep guard. Thank you. Yeah. Excellent. So let's, Let's see if pop up a question. All Tech is Human asks, how can we get a better understanding of what would be considered human-centered given the vast spectrum of values? In other words, with a human-first strategy, what humans are we thinking of? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, can, I guess there's not a really back and forth question there, but how can we get a better understanding of what would be considered human-centered given the vast spectrum? Um, this is, I mean, this is something I debate all the time. I have to interact with all the time. Right. Um, I guess maybe me explaining my process and how I got to where I am would help a little bit on how I don't know that I have like set principles of exactly all of those things and, and how do we do it? Um, I think there's a lot of people developing those principles and frameworks. Um, but again, that's, that's part of us building this right now. And, and it's going to be us building it for years, decades to come. Um, but I will say in the diversity of life, we'll go there first. Uh, when I first started out with this, I was working at Google and Google is a global company. You instantly start to think how you do things and implement them and scale them out globally. So my first thought when I got into all this work was I want to make a global company. Well, I traveled the world for two and a half years, six to eight months out of the year. And I realized, wow. I need to focus on the United States first yeah, because there is such a diversity mm -hmm. and I'm not just talking in skin color, right. Or like some of the superficial things I'm talking in cultures, mm -hmm. I'm talking in food. I'm talking in like literally the way people, the metaphysical experience of the world. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I have no right going into some of these other nations trying to explain why this should be put together in this way because I don't know their lifestyles. I don't know their governments, how it's all implemented. Anyway, fast forward a little bit. I started to focus on the United States. I, I toured a lot throughout the United States. And uh, even here, I think it's, it's outstanding how much diversity we have in the United States. It's unbelievable to me, having given all the talks I've given throughout the world, that we have the United States, period, point blank, period. I agree. I see that all the time. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. And um, to get people so well aligned, like it is very difficult. Um, so how do we make it human centered? It's I'm going to give you a real generic answer, but I believe it is simply having equity at the table. You know, uh, it is getting the right people in the room. Uh, something I've read about in my book is that none of these systems should be developed out without representation. And one thing I came uh, I came to, a line that I put in the book and that I've been pushing, uh, is that there should be no implementation without representation, the same way that we fought for no taxation without representation back in the early days of our of our uh, nation. Uh, and so that's a that's a simple phrase I'll give you to walk away with, but that includes not just skin color, but lifestyles, uh, technical abilities, a uh, bunch of different things, a bunch of different variables. And you're never going to have the perfect group of people that is optimally representative. 
the whole thing is we have to create systems that are built to have checks and balances that are built to constantly be in beta, right? Because when, whenever we hit the point where we say, Hey, we've built that group, that working group, we're done. We got them put together. We're assembled. At that point, you've lost mm-hmm. because things change all the time. Life changes all the time. We have to constantly be checking and see like, is that board of directors as good this year as we were last year? Are there new positions we need to fill? Are there things that have changed? Your company is going to change. Your population that you're serving is going to change. Uh, it's a it's a constant change in the system. And, and, and it, I think the optimum point is that, one, like I said, we have proper representation. And two, we're constantly checking in to make sure that representation is appropriate. And that's about as, like, that's great. Fine, as I can give you. Leon asks, the lives of America's youth millennials is online. Between Facebook, Insta, YouTube, gaming, et cetera, their whole lives are collected. Why should they care what they do and how they get, how do we get them the message? So I guess the question is, how, why should they care? Like that's, that is actually a good question I ask my students. Why do they care? About, I guess like, we're asking about content. Like, Students use this like nonchalantly or young people use it nonchalantly. Like, how do you get the care? The care is a big, like. Yeah, I guess I'm asking, oh, what are we, what are we caring about here? Um, and maybe that's a whole nother question there and I'll try yeah. to answer it my own frame, but are we caring about the privacy? Are we caring about manipulative uh, design practices? Are we caring about ad targeting, market targeting, stuff like that? Um, and maybe, maybe you want an answer to all of them. Um, I will say I started off with that mindset when I was doing it. And as I got deeper and deeper into this, I realized that all of those things and all like the whole umbrella of tech ethics, each subject is becoming and will be in the future, its own industry. That's how deep some of this stuff is. So, um, to actually like define what is like caring, what are we caring about? I'm going to approach it from the privacy perspective because that's, that's me. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll just, I'll just answer that perspective right now, but um, I think from privacy, we have to, it's like trying to get people to care about mountain lions stalking you, right? Like you don't actually care about a mountain lion stalking you until it comes and eats your head off. Um, and that's unfortunately the system of the internet. Uh, I think it's going to be a long time before we have that well ingrained into people's minds, the importance of privacy. But what it comes down to is privacy is what enables freedom. Uh, privacy is what allows us to be weirdos without having to be embarrassed. It's what allows us to have dissenting opinions without any uh, pushback, without any like going to jail, stuff like that, right? Uh, and people say, well, I, I don't have anything to hide. I have no, no problems. Um, you're telling me you've never told a white lie in your entire life? Um, you're lying right now, okay? Um, and so privacy is really important, and there are a lot of points to it beyond just advertising. As I talked about you know, earlier, um, data is an asset and ultimately what privacy comes down is those privacy settings that privacy policy when you click consent that is the if you will the intake valve the spigot at which point your data can be input and used and i think privacy is highly important because uh one it's enabling our freedom two you're working for a company so you should be paid i think that's a big way to get to them is you should be paid for this work I believe it's the future of blue collar labor. Um, and two, it's, it's, it's just, so it's right. It's 
point blank, it's what's right. Uh, I believe there's a moral obligation. And, and yes, society's lost a bit of its morality over the last uh, 1,500 years as we've gotten more scientific than ever before. Um, but I think there's a moral responsibility as well. I, I really liked your answer with that one. I, that hits to me at the, the baseline of like where, where education comes from. Like I traveled the country too. I did it in a different way. I did it with reality television as a producer. And when I saw the United States, I saw it as, it's amazing. Like it's just how many, how diverse and how wildly strange it is to be a United States. Yeah. And when you get that concept of it, you get like a different sense of it. And then I think to go to Leon's question about why they care is like when you deal with students or young people in K-12, because there's no real framework of how you get to learn these systems, it is like a lot of what you just said is like, what do we explain is what, how do you translate that to something that's important to understand inside these systems? And I, I liked what you said is like, privacy to me is the baseline of like, what gives us our rights? What allows us to be us? What gives us agency mm -hmm. in that type of space? And so that that's the type of thing where we have to do a lot of translation work in education yeah. to kind of bring that to young people who have, unfortunately like they haven't been guided they're either by parents or through the systems and they're just there we're just in these spaces so thank you for your work um i just want to bring up one last thing could you tell me about your the new project can you talk about the the social dilemma yeah actually i was going to tag it onto your comment there um oh, thinking of it as you're talking um and i think additionally to that last question why how do we get kids to care um so I'm in a movie called The Social Dilemma that just literally over the weekend got acquired by Netflix and will be coming out. It's featuring, you know, Tristan Harris, Kathy O'Neill, Roger McNamee, Rashida Richardson, a bunch of big, big names. Um, and we've created this movie to help people understand this. It's not just a technical thing. Um, it's actually like a docudrama. So there's like part of a movie. It's a narrative to it. It's not just a documentary. And I hope that that helps. But what I was going to mention about it <clears throat> and the kids especially is um, it was in Sundance and we went and presented in Sundance and each of the crowds we had was between five and 600 people, something like that. And then we had a screening for high schoolers. Uh, we filled out over 1100 high schoolers in a bi-level auditorium. And it was, I don't know, I, I guess maybe like the most emotional crowd I've ever been involved in. Um, we screen the movie everywhere. And by the end, so there's like the movie at the end of it, you know, I'm not gonna give the whole thing away, but at the end of it, it cuts. And when we were filming and are screening to adults, when it cuts, everyone clapped. And then instead of credits, well, there's credits, but instead of like the long form bloopers and stuff like that, it actually goes into like things you can do and extra highlights that we didn't put in the film. Um, and it was not until after that the kids started clapping so for us as the people that were in the movie we're sitting there and it was silent everyone else was like like loud out of their minds for the film and then these kids were just silent and we were like oh they hated it it was terrible they kids are never going to pick it up and then afterwards we had questions and answers with them and these kids were screaming at us about why we need to keep doing what we're doing because their parents never paid attention to them growing up or because they can't connect with friends anymore or because companies need to have a moral responsibility to protect us. So while the question is correct, why should kids care? I would argue, actually, kids already do care. And they know more about, they don't know the technicalities of it, but they know the sentimental value of what's going on. They don't know why it's happening. And I hope this film opens their mind to say, it's not your fault. 
and we need to make change. Awesome. Thank you. When is the social dilemma? When will we be able to see it? That one, you have to follow up because um, I don't even find out until two weeks from now. We're having a meeting with the whole team and, and uh, kind of figuring out the rollout strategy through COVID. Um, but you can go to thesocialdilemma.com uh, and pick up, sign on to our newsletter, and, and you'll get all the updates on, on what's going on. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. For more information about Digital Void, including our upcoming salons, podcasts, and workshops, make sure to visit us at digitalvoid.media. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. If you're posting to social media, make sure to use the hashtag digital void. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at digivoidmedia at gmail.com to let us know about collaborations, sponsorships, and feedback.